Well, grab your Bible or your phone or tablet or whatever you're using uh, and, and turn to Daniel chapter 6. You know, really, the book of Daniel continues this theme of God having sovereignty over all of creation and even sovereignty over other nations while Israel is in exile, away from Jerusalem, perhaps. And actually, at this point, the temple has been destroyed already. And yet, even though the temple is gone, God is still active in his world. And we follow this character in the book of Daniel named aptly Daniel, right? And this individual, if you think about what his name means in Hebrew, and if maybe if your name was Daniel, you would know that too. Uh, it's a name which means God is my judge or God my judge. And that's really how we see Daniel operating throughout all of the book of Daniel. Daniel recognizes that he's under the authority of God and that it is to him that he will answer to uh, at any point in his life. Uh, not the kings who are over him, not the, the other leaders, not these uh, satraps and administrators that are trying to um, you know, uh, create laws to make him uh, go to prison or die. Uh, he's, those are not the people he answers to. He answers uh, to God. So he changes the way that he lives. In the beginning chapters of Daniel, Daniel uh, kind of says, uh, let me eat different food when they were trying to, to have all of the leaders eat certain types of food and see which of us look better, right? Uh, so he doesn't do that. He doesn't bow to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar and, and faces consequences for that. And now we come up to uh, a spot in Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, where he will refuse to stop praying to God. So let's look at that. We're going to read verses 1 through 16 this morning. Get there. From the NIV. It pleased Darius, that's the king, to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. Another way maybe to put that is uh, instead of satraps could be more modern, you think about it, governors, right? We have governors over specific areas of land, right? Uh, with three administrators over them, one whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis of charge against this man Daniel unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as, the, uh, as a group to the king and said, May Darius the king live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors all have agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays 
to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except you, majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now your majesty issued a decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So Darius, King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. These men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, The decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort to do so until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. I think sometimes when we hear this story, perhaps we forget the fact that Daniel was such a prominent political figure in that day and in that country. Call it Babylon, or uh, could be called the, the Medo-Persian Empire. And it's, it's, it was a very large empire in the day, and it expanded under the rule of, of King Darius. It was large swaths of territory in the Middle East. It included, even into Africa, Egypt, Israel, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, Iraq, Turkey, Turkmenistan, Iran, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and then parts of Uzbekistan, Greece, Libya, Sudan, and even into India. So this was not just a small, small area. And, and King Darius took, and he took and, and had 120, we, we call them satraps, or we could call them governors, a more modern-day term, that was overseeing specific parts of these areas. And then he set three administrators over top of those 120 Governors, we can call them presidents. Three presidents who are over these probably larger sections of territory. He was a high official. And among those three, he so distinguished himself that King Darius was actually going to set 
Daniel over top of all of the empire. The whole empire. Because his conduct and his qualities were exemplary. He was known for how he lived. It distinguished him from everyone else in the whole Medo-Persian or Babylonian kingdom. In Daniel's high regard, people had issue with that. The other governing officials of the day had issue with that and, and were perhaps frustrated by what was taking place, that he would be set over the entire empire. And they knew, because they knew Daniel, that there was no way that they could get that they could defame his name and, and take him out of that position unless it was something to do with his God. What does that tell us about this man, Daniel? That his faith was so well known. That his prayer life in particular was regimented perhaps a daily routine, a daily practice that happened, that his prayer life was, was unwavering and that it was so established in his character that if any law or anything would come in the way, he would largely disregard that law and continue to practice the prayer that he has done perhaps for years. His enemies knew that he would pray continually, and so that is where they focused this law. That is what the opportunity in place was to attack Daniel. I think in this story, we see that prayer, it's not just for professional religious people. Daniel is someone who has political power overseeing a part of an empire, perhaps even at that time a whole empire. And he didn't leave prayer to the, to the priests or the religious people or the prophets of the day. Instead, he too spent time, we read later, three times a day. In the same way today, prayer is not limited to professional religious people. While I sure hope that members of our staff would spend time, concerted time in prayer for our congregation, for the world, and for the needs of our church and world. And I, I, I sure hope that members of the prayer team, you could call them professional religious people too as volunteers, right? That they too would spend time in prayer. But prayer is not just for those individuals or for, for times when we experience trials or difficulties or significant discord or struggle or, or uh, we want to see some type of activism come through. Prayer is not limited to those people or specific times. If we look at prayer in that way, honestly, we're looking at it quite limited. I don't think we can construct these types of limits on prayer, on who can pray and when and for what reasons we do that. Prayer is not limited to people with 
empty schedules that out of a drop of a hat they could bow down or drop on their knees in prayer because I'm sure that Daniel himself too had a fairly busy life helping to oversee a significant portion of those 120 satraps or governors. And not only was he probably rather busy, he was also living in a country that was very secular at the time. Perhaps we even could say more secular than our culture today. Even among all of that, Daniel found time to put into his life a practice of prayer. But even though he lived his life by prayer, he, he encountered the difficulties, some of them which we've already mentioned before and some of which we read in this chapter. The other high officials started working together to get the king to sign an edict that for 30 days... If someone prayed to any other human or any other god other than Darius, the majestic king, they would be lion food. And here's the interesting thing about it. Not there, right here. Maybe. Verse 10. I'd like that up on the screen. There we are. It says this, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published. There's no faking ignorance at this point after that statement. There's no faking ignorance that, Oh, I didn't know I was not supposed to pray to a different God. Instead, he, he knew it had been published. He knew it was going to be against the law to pray. And yet he was going to follow through. He knew it was signed and he, he knew it was published. He knew that he was going to openly defy this order where he was going to pray to some other God and some other human being other than Darius the king. But the reality is he didn't even hide that he was doing it. Uh, this is where there's a, maybe a little discrepancy with the Jesus Storybook Bible. The Jesus Storybook Bible says he went into his house and closed the door. He might have done that, but then he went over to the open windows that were facing towards Jerusalem. And now there's, there's questions to whether there was like, did you, they were cranked open, I assume, right? It might have been different. Were they just large open windows? What were they like? But apparently they were facing towards Jerusalem, which also meant other people could see him. He wasn't trying to secretly or, or uh, in hiding pray but he was just going to go about his normal routine of prayer, which consisted of gathering to pray for three times. Perhaps many of us, we don't think about the number of times we pray during the day, and I don't think this passage is specifically talking about that. There's nowhere in the Old Testament that says you need to, to get down and pray three times a day. Oftentimes we do use our meals as a marker for that, Oftentimes, prayer at breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Uh, we do that at my home, and, and that's great. That's part of, you know, part of the way you can have that routine. But oftentimes, I think perhaps we even think less about the direction that we pray. 
What way do we, we face when we pray? And there's actually a spot in 1 Kings 8 where uh, it talks about praying towards Jerusalem. And that Daniel then was, was following that, praying towards Jerusalem, that the Lord would perhaps one day um, uh, heal and respond to the people who had sinned. They had sinned and they were sent into exile, and, and he was praying perhaps that they would be restored and returned and directed back to, to the place of worship that they, they had been previously. Daniel was still praying towards Jerusalem, even though the temple had long been destroyed. The people dispersed, no longer gathering in that one central location to worship their God, yet he faced towards that way. And even though he faced toward death, in a sense, he continued to follow God no matter what it was going to cost him. Perhaps no matter how uncomfortable it could have been. Daniel is exercising faithfulness towards his God and being openly faithful in front of the windows. And then Daniel, he's, he's brought before Darius as well as all of these other uh, governors. And similar to last week, the king does not have the power to save. The king does not have the power to save. Last week it was Naaman. Naaman didn't have the power to save, or sorry, not Naaman. The king of Israel didn't have the power to save Naaman. And now this week, Darius does not have the power to save Daniel, even though he cares for him. The king's unable to remove the law that he created. But Daniel still believes in God, who is active, and so he prayed to him, and he knows his God is sovereign. And then we come to the most maybe familiar part of the story. He's thrown into the lion's den, and, and the king is, is worried, and, and he doesn't sleep, and the king comes back in the morning and, and checks out to see if Daniel was there and if he was alive. Daniel's faith was in God. More powerful than a king. And I think it's a model for us in our life. When we think about the contemporary significance of this passage, perhaps the question becomes this. What do we do when the law of the land, the law of the king, contradicts God's law? Perhaps that's something that we've thought about in the past I don't know, nine, eight, nine months. What happens when decrees or things set forth seems to at some point contradict with what we believe in Scripture? I'm, I'm a member of a, right, the CRC denomination, so I hear a lot of what's happening in other churches, and I hear what's happening in other states. And people were concerned in California when they even asked churches to just not meet outright and altogether, where in Michigan... We weren't bound by kind of perhaps those same laws. 
And pastors were wondering, what does it mean to follow the law and not meet? Does it mean that we're not trusting in God and in what he has set forth in our life? And it's a difficult time going through this, trying to discern how to move forward. It's something that happens weekly on a weekly basis, having to decide how do other laws and things affect how we worship here in this place. Perhaps wondering, is it the government that is restricting our very worship of God? I want to name that there's some amount of discomfort for probably some of us, perhaps even, even all of us that we can't and that we are not gathering as we typically would. That we're not gathering you know, without masks per se, and that we're, we're not gathering being able to come up and hug one another or shake one another's hands or have the greeter at the door like we normally do. We can, we can name that. And I don't mean for this next section that we're going to move into the sermon to, to make us feel shameful about how we feel about this situation or to make us feel even less uncomfortable for what we are experiencing here today, whether we're meeting here on, or we're meeting online. But I think something that's come to my attention more that I, I did not focus on much at all is the actual persecution that Christians experience all around the world. While there is uncomfortable feelings the way we have right now that we can't gather as usual, there's other Christians in other countries that experience far worse. Where even joining perhaps a Zoom prayer gathering or a Zoom worship service would lead to violent persecution. So these are just five countries from uh, the open doors of the U.S. who make aware what persecution looks like in a variety of different countries. And, and so I think what we can do is, is when we are experiencing what we do, we, 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 can, we can lay that before God and say how difficult that is, but we can also pray for those who are experiencing similar and perhaps even more difficult situations. More like situations that Daniel was experiencing, situations where they would, they would put their legitimate life on the line. Pray for the 300,000 Christians in North Korea. They have to keep their faith in complete secrecy. Because if they become discovered as someone who worships God or, or believes in Christ, they're arrested and imprisoned and taken to labor camps and treated like slaves. We can pray for Christians in India. For many, part of the identity of being Indian is also being Hindi. Christians, therefore, experience violent, violent persecution. Several states within India themselves have adopted anti-conversion laws, and there's an actual political party that wants to make that a nation wide thing, a country-wide thing. We can pray for Christians in Somalia 
where conversion to Christianity is considered a betrayal of the Somali family and clan. They're harassed. They're intimidated. Even killed. We can pray for the millions of Christians in Nigeria. They experience violence from Boko Haram. Christians with a Muslim background face rejection from their own families on top of potential physical violence. Many Christians, too, have actually just started to dress similar to Muslims so as to make their faith less obvious to receive less persecution. Maybe a little bit closer to home, we can pray for our brothers and sisters in Myanmar. The Chin Church gathers here a little bit later this afternoon. The pressure on Christians in Myanmar has slowly begun to increase as army maintains control of the government in such a way to minimize the very rights of Christians, to limit what they can do and how they can live. I think we're invited into a life of prayer. A life of recognizing how different Christians experience the exact same thing perhaps in a little bit different way that Daniel experienced in this passage. We, like Daniel, can pray in front of our windows open. We can pray in front of our computers. We can pray in in front of cameras and not experience persecution or the threat of death. Therefore, we need to use that gift. What a gift we've been given that we can worship and pray freely. And therefore, let us worship and pray freely for those who are unable to do so on their own. Where the worship of God really, truly means the giving of all of their life. It's an opportunity to point to God who saves. And and perhaps even in their country, we will see that God will save not only them, but others. Others perhaps who created those laws. Where God can make himself known more fully through the faithfulness God has for his people. One day they may too come to know God like Darius. We didn't read this verse, but verse 27, the first part. This is Darius talking about Yahweh the Lord. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of lions. He rescues us too. Perhaps it's not in the face of of death. But it actually is from the threat of death itself. Because it was the Lord through Jesus Christ who came to conquer sin and death. Our two greatest enemies. Let's pray together. Pray for the myriad of Christians around the world.
Lord, we know Christians face difficulty, hardships at various levels. Some, some of it's open persecution. Some of it is they need to be secret, secretive in how they gather and how they pray. We live through a variety of fears. Fear of, of what may happen. Fear of family rejection. We pray that we would draw our source from you. That our source of power would be from you and, and not from ourselves. Lord, we know that for many Christians, it seems that they have so little power and little control over their own lives, including perhaps their own safety and their own health. We pray for Christians who, who often battle against the, the government as their accusers. Even in places that wouldn't, wouldn't provide them fair trial and instead would look at them as a threat to national security. We pray that you would strengthen by your spirit Christians who struggle on a day-to-day -day basis. We pray that you would strengthen Christians who are experiencing worship in a life differently today than what they did before, because I'm sure it's even changed during this global pandemic. Lord, we pray that these circumstances which cause so much difficulty in the life of Christians can be laid back on you. Lord, we pray that you would arise in us, those around the world who can worship freely, to acknowledge more and more those who can't, to pray more and more that they would be given the words to speak, that they would be given the protection that is needed, that laws would change to allow them, too, to worship freely. In all this, Lord, we pray that you ultimately are glorified as the one who rescues and saves, as the one who performs signs and wonders in heaven and even here on earth, that your name would be glorified as the Savior of this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.